Red Rock Lit Fest Writers Read. Today I am with writer Robert Geron. Robert is a graduate of Swampscott High School, Brown University, and Suffolk University Law School. He practiced law for 37 years. He is the author of Big Blue Days, the story of a small town football dynasty in Swampscott, Massachusetts. The book tells the story of legendary high school coach Stan Help me out Bondalevich. here. Bondalevich. And the remarkably successful program he established and led in Swampscott during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Hi, and welcome, Robert, also known as Bob. That's right. Okay. Thank and, you. Pleased to be here. Oh, good, 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 good. Now, before you begin telling us about <laughs> your book and reading a bit of it, I have three questions for you to ask you about writing. Fire away. Okay. Do you prefer pen or keyboard when you write? Well, that's a no-brainer for me. It has to be keyboard, and it has to be keyboard with... Uh, Pretty good uh, word software because I am a, an a I am a compulsive editor. Uh, I marvel at people that can somehow they have the talent to sort of see it all in their mind, organize it all in their mind, get the words right, and put it down on paper. They're one and done. I just I've never been able to do that. Uh, even through the, my law practice, I write, I rewrite, I reread, I rewrite, I edit. And I think I'm a pretty tough self-critic, and I have to get it right, which right, R-I-G-H-T. Uh, and so, yeah, I need to, uh, I'll tell you one, just one quick story on that. Um, when I was writing Big Blue Days, I got really carried away on some chapters and had all kinds of stories, and I wanted to get them all in there, and I wrote them and worked on them. Ultimately, I discovered, I came to this, the conclusion that my manuscript had become ridiculously long and uh, I knew I had to get rid of thousands of words I mean literally thousands and that would be really hard to do because you think every word you've written is you know so vital uh, so I was sitting at the uh, desk bemoaning that fact to myself mumbling and my granddaughter who at the time I think she was eight maybe seven walked through the room and she said oh what are you doing? I said, well, I told her, I said, this is going to be really hard. I have to get rid of thousands of words from this book I'm writing. And she says, oh, I can help you with that. It's really easy. You just hit the delete button on the keyboard. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be great if I could just do that without figuring out how to actually edit it out. But anyway, definitely keyboard. Definitely keyboard. And you know about the delete button. I know about the delete button. Unfortunately, sometimes you inadvertently relate things, and that's tough, too. And what about writing? Do you Are you a daytime or a nighttime writer? I don't have a preference. I really don't in terms of time. Uh, mine's always been opportunity. Uh, when you don't have the distractions, when you don't have other compelling commitments, any time of the day or night, when that's the case, it's the right time. I would I would write uh, when I was working on the on the book. That's what I did. Uh, I remember reading about Ernest Hemingway, and he was so disciplined about his writing that he would first thing in the morning he would sit down and he would commit commit himself and he used to say, 
to write one good page. One good page. And when he finished, he could keep going, but he didn't feel he had to keep going. So he'd go out and fish and hunt and do whatever, drink, whatever it was that he liked to do. But he had to do that one good page. And he said sometimes it took, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Sometimes it took a full day to get the one page right. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have that thing, get up in the morning and do it. I just did it whenever the, whenever the opportunity was best. The thing is, though, that once I get into it, I get lost in it often. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it's two in the morning or the whole day's gone by, which wasn't the plan, but you just lose track of time sometimes when you're writing, at least I do. Hmm. Wow. And what is inspiring you at the moment? At the moment. Yeah, sure. <laughs> at the moment, if there is anything. I don't have anything. I, I think my answer on that would be an answer that a lot of people would give. I mean, great music inspires me, great writing. Uh, anything where you've got someone taking a special talent and putting it to special use. It's really, when I think back on Big Blue Days, I mean, I was motivated and inspired to write that story. If I hadn't been, I don't think I could have gotten it yes. done. Uh, and what motivated me was uh, people used to refer to it, some of us and some of the coaches, and, as special times and uh, in a special place. And the older I got, the more I thought, you know, I think, I think that's right. And so I wanted to try to write a story to explain why we think it was so special. Oh, great. Okay. And what are you going to be reading to us today? <coughs> Tell us about your book. Well, the book, uh, the book is, uh, as the title suggests, it's a story of uh, what I felt was a remarkable uh, high school football program put together by a remarkable coach who came here in the early 1950s and built this amazingly successful program. And what I tried to do is capture that in a book, capture the experiences that so many of us had, uh, try to portray and sort of paint a portrait of this coach and some of the other people that built this program. And I did it, really the book's written chronologically, so it starts in a period right before Stan Bondalevich, or Bondi as we call him, came to Swampscott. And the football program then was about as abysmal as you could find one. So the book starts with that and then goes forward to, to the 1970s when he stopped and left. Um, and I guess what I, the only thing I would say about the book is that someone told me when I was writing, because it's the only book I've ever written, and they asked me, what it, what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about this successful football program. They had these long winning streaks, and they won all these championships. And he said, you know, sometimes with writers, you start out and you think the book's going to be about something. And during the process of writing it, you kind of discover. It's a discovery process for you. And you say, you know, really, it's not. It's about something a little different. And that's what I found with Big Blue Days, what I ultimately concluded was most special about the time was not the winning, it was the learning. It was these coaches, especially this guy who's the main coach, uh, was an educator. I mean, that's why you had football in school and sports in school. 
And he was a remarkable, in my view, educator. And the lessons that you learned were the things that the people remembered when I interviewed them. And that's that became more of the, hopefully, more of the focus of the story. So anyway, that's, that's basically it. Okay. What are you going to read to us? I thought I would uh, start at the beginning uh, and read some of the uh, preamp, uh, the preface, and then just the first page or so of the first chapter, which again is the sort of tries to set the stage for Stan Bondalevich's arrival, and then the rest of it goes into his background before he came to Swampscott, but I, I won't get into that. And then I just wanted to read a couple paragraphs from uh, the 68 and 69 uh, seasons, uh, because that was sort of in the midst of his longest winning streak, and he was kind of at the zenith of his success. And a little bit of those, a little bit about that, and then just one final paragraph from the epilogue, which I think hopefully captures what I was trying to convey about education and what you learn playing football. Okay. Sports. Okay. Let's listen. Uh, let me put on my reading glasses. Okay. Mm, I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> Don't know anything about it. Well, hopefully you'll know a little more about it after this. So this is <clears throat> the preface. Thanksgiving morning, 1966. I ran the hook pattern, turned, and caught the pass. Immediately, someone hit me from behind. As I started to go down, my brother Dick sprinted into view. As planned, I tossed the ball back toward him before hitting the ground. Commonly referred to as a hook and lateral, in our offense, the play was the happy jack pass, dubbed such by our coach, Stan Bondalevich. The gimmicky play was designed for a desperate situation. We faced one trailing Marblehead 22-21 with the ball not even over midfield and time running out. Hopefully, the defensive backs would converge on me and not react in time as I pitched it to Dick. Though only a sophomore, he was our most explosive player, capable of going the distance if given the slightest opening. But it failed. Perhaps our timing was off, or our opponents just did a great job defending. In any case, we were finished. I heard a whistle, looked up, and saw the headers celebrating. As of that time, Bondi, as he was often called, had a splendid record as Swampscott High's coach. Thirteen of his 14 teams had finished with winning seasons. Three had been undefeated and won state championships. But we were a senior-laden squad. Swampscott's fans had to be wondering when their school might again contend for a title. In fact, it did not take long. In the seven seasons immediately following that disappointing Thanksgiving morning, the high school team from the little town of Swampscott, Massachusetts, clinched seven conference titles, finished unbeaten five times, and won four Eastern Massachusetts Class B championships and the first Eastern Massachusetts High School Super Bowl game. At one point, Swampscott's Big Blue owned a record of 59 wins with one loss. In 1976, one local newspaper reported that Bondi's announced retirement brought to an end, quote, the greatest coaching era in the history of New England schoolboy football. He inevitably became legendary coach Stan Bondalevich. 
Sports writers will deem a coach legendary based on an extraordinary career record of wins and championships. Yet even without such a remarkable record, Bondi would have been a legend in Swampscott. He was more than a coach. In some respects, he was a consummate salesman. His genius lay not so much in command of the intricacies of football strategies and the so-called X's and O's, as in an uncanny ability to promote, persuade, and motivate individuals, groups, and ultimately an entire community. He was far from perfect, but any shortcomings were eclipsed by his positives. Colorful and entertaining, he inspired a generation of kids, hundreds of whom he helped in numerous ways. Reader's Digest magazine had run a long-standing regular feature titled the most unforgettable character I ever met. For me, and I suspect many others in Swampscott, that was Stanley W. Bondalevich. While playing football can be physically and emotionally challenging, Bondi often found ways to make even practices enjoyable. He liked to say that playing the game was fun, but playing and winning was much more fun. At times, Big Blue football almost seemed like a three-ring circus with the smiling, wisecracking, gregarious coach acting as both ringmaster and featured attraction. And through it all, hundreds of teenagers learned lessons that served them well in later life. The educational value of secondary school athletics is too often overlooked or trivialized. Sports and other so-called extracurricular activities are treated as superfluous luxuries that can be pared down or jettisoned in an age of tight budgets and waning interest. However, for numerous adolescents, their most valuable enduring learning experiences were, and should continue to be, those associated with such activities. Their most memorable teachers were, and should continue to be, some of the men and women devoted to coaching young people. That was clearly the case for many of the boys who played football in Swampscott during the period between 1953 and 1973. They look back now and recall it as a special time in a special place. This is a story about that special place and about the players and the men who coached them in those bygone days. So that's the preface. Wonderful. And oh gosh. Okay. What's coming next? What's coming next is the, as I said, the uh, just first page or so of the first chapter, which was titled, which is titled "Time for a Change." The cupola, with its green spire, now faded and crumbling, still marks the highest point in the small seaside town. It rests precariously atop a sad old brick building that sits vacant and neglected on a hill high above Swampscott Harbor. The abandoned edifice is silent and still, but it was not always so. Once it was alive with hundreds of youthful voices. A bell would ring, triggering an eruption of noise and activity as seas of teenage boys and girls poured out of classrooms and flooded the corridors. Hallway lockers were opened and closed, and shouts and laughter reverberated. Then a second bell rang. The youthful flood receded, 
teachers shut the doors, and the only sounds heard in the empty halls were faint muffled voices from within the classrooms. The old relic was once the home of Swampscott High School. It witnessed the hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows, and triumphs and failures of generations of students and their teachers. In the fall, when the final bell signaled the end of another school day, the high school's athletes hustled off to Phillips Park for practice with their respective teams. The majority lacking cars or rides trooped down Greenwood Avenue to Humphrey Street, where they could gaze across the blue waters of Nahant Bay to the Boston skyline some 15 miles distant. Turning left, they continued past Fisherman's Beach, the Surf Theater, and the historic fish house, the community's most famous landmark. They then passed the well-worn executive golf course behind the once grand New Ocean House Hotel before arriving at the Veterans Memorial Fieldhouse in Phillips Park. The Fieldhouse still stands today, just beyond a short road called Bondalevich Way. That road leads to the parking lot behind Bloxage Field, home of Swampscott's Big Blue football team. But the road was not always Bondalevich Way, and Bloxage Field was not always the home of the Big Blue. Back in 1952, it was the home of the Sculpins. Sculpins are inactive, bottom-dwelling fish. They have little value to humans except that some have been used to bait lobster traps. They are also strikingly unattractive. In the early 1950s, the high school football team seemed to be living down to the lowly image of those creatures. The Swampscott Sculpins suffered one ugly defeat after another, and they slunk along at the bottom of the Northeastern Conference standings. <laughs> So that's sort of the situation <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that Stan Bondalevich came to when he arrived in 1953. And as an aside, he quickly changed the name from the Sculpins to the Big Blue. Oh, nice. Excellent. <laughs> so let me just skip ahead now to sort of much later in the book. And it's the late 1960s, the end of the 1968 season. And that chapter was, was titled juggernaut. And uh, so I'll read just the last two paragraphs of that and then the first two paragraphs of the next chapter in 1969. This was during a long undefeated win streak that the Swampscott teams were experiencing through many through a number of seasons. So 16 football seasons had passed since his arrival and the townspeople decided to honor their high school coach with a testimonial dinner. Perhaps it was seen as a way of not only thanking him for what he had accomplished, but for his decision to remain. Approximately 50 individuals worked on one of, of more than seven planning committees. John P. Ingalls, Jr., a direct descendant of Swampscott's earliest resident, served as general chairman and toastmaster. The testimonial was held at the Harvard Club in Boston on March 8, 1969. A 28-page commemorative program was produced. Speakers included Dick Lynch and former players Winslow Shaw, Bob Carlin, Barry Gallup, Dick Geron, and Al Viola. Viola had been the captain and MVP of one of Bondi's Maynard High School teams. 
After serving as a Marine in the Korean War, he attended Northwestern University, where he captained the football team and became the school's first academic All-American. The rugged lineman once made an NCAA record-setting five fumble recoveries in a single game. Perhaps the most memorable line of the evening came during Viola's speech. Having flown in from Chicago, Viola looked at his former mentor and said, Coach, I did not travel all this distance for the chicken dinner. I did it to tell you that I love you. So the 1969 chapter begins this way. On May 8, 1969, a fire started in the lobby of the vacant New Ocean House Hotel. It quickly spread through the sprawling complex and could not be extinguished. Over the years, the hotel had played host to many of the country's most famous citizens. Lucille Ball, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Helen Keller, John F. Kennedy, Sinclair Lewis, Harpo Marx, and Babe Ruth were among those who visited. Many Swampscotters fondly remembered the place as the glamorous site of their high school proms. Reconstruction was out of the question. The era when wealthy vacationers made the New Ocean House their summer home had passed. Nonetheless, it was a sudden, poignant, and sad ending to a once elegant grand lady. Big Blue football players would never again be able to look up from their practice field and see the flag waving atop the roof of what had been one of New England's most renowned seaside resorts. However, they could continue to look up and see Stan Bondalevich atop his tower. While the gala testimonial dinner in March had seemed like a send-off at the conclusion of a remarkable high school coaching career, Bondi remained. He was not finished with his work in Swampscape. So that goes on, and, and then the only other thing I think I'll read today is one paragraph from the epilogue, which, as I mentioned, I think kind of, for me, summarizes what I mean about education through playing a sport like football. I suspect that none of us as high school players fully understood that football fields were classrooms where coaches taught important life lessons, often in a straightforward and highly effective way. My most vivid recollection from high school football is of a moment at the end of a seemingly insignificant play. I had been chasing an opposing quarterback toward our sideline when one of his teammates blindsided me at the knees. I was momentarily airborne before hitting the ground hard. As I lay there shaken, I heard a command shouted by a nearby familiar voice. I looked, and there was Bondi, crouching on the sideline just a few feet away. He had been following the action and was fully engaged in the moment. His face was flushed, and his eyes, as large as saucers, were riveted on me. He yelled the words a second time, just two short words. Get up! Ooh, <laughs> well, that's absolutely fascinating. Oh, I mean, what a combination of everything, especially the history, that early history, because you're sneaking in things about the town as well as the uh, football right. team as well, which is very cool. Thanks. I, I, I really, while 
the coach, the head coach, Stan Bondalevich, was obviously sort of the, the focus of the story. Uh, it's also a story about a community, and, yes. and that's yes. why on the title, you say special times in a special place. Uh, the more I thought about it again as I got older, the more I thought about it, and I moved away from Swampscott. I practiced my entire uh, legal practice and career was in New Hampshire, and I moved back here recently. But I always thought back on it and thought, it was pretty special uh, mm. because it wasn't just a coach. It was a community and and a community that uh, that came together to really support uh, you know, a group of teenagers uh, playing together as a team, um, and uh, so so yes, I uh, it is I do try to write uh, throughout the book some about the community, the town, and that early chapter I described it the the town, its history a little bit. Uh, yes, as you you may know, it was actually part of Lynn until the mid eighteen hundreds when the swamps get broke off. Swampscott really was more of a fishing village, and Lynn was becoming more of a manufacturing center. But huh. it's an interesting history in the town. It was, um, up to the turn of the century, a, a really kind of an East Coast resort town. Uh, and they had it That's one, right, with the big houses, and oh, yes. yes. Yes, and at one point, I think they had like a dozen hotels or guest houses along the shore. Good heavens, wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're all gone now. Yeah. Condominiums. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's changed. And and you probably noticed at the beginning I wrote about the the old building that was up on the hill, and of course that was torn down uh, after shortly after the book was published. But okay. at the time I was reading, mm. I was writing mm. the book. It was just sitting up there and had been for a number of years. Right, and it had become the old, the middle school, it, and it then it was had. called the old middle school because That's then correct. it was just empty. Yeah, for years when, and when years. I was That's in high right. school in the '60s, that was the high school, okay. that old building, and the middle school was well, we didn't have we had junior high school. That we only had sophomore three years of high school beginning with sophomores. Junior high school was Shaw Junior High, and then shortly thereafter they swapped them and they made they turned Shaw Junior High into the high school and. The uh, high school became the middle school because they also changed to a four-year high school. That's right. Okay. Huh. Wow. Yeah. You know a lot. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I, had, I had to do the research. I Absolutely, spent uh, yeah. a lot of time in the Lynn Public Library going mm. through the archive, the archival uh, um, newspapers going all the way back. Wow. Yeah. That was not the most fun part of the project. Interviewing these people was the thing. I bet. Oh, yeah. yeah. Talking is always good. Some in their 80s, you know, and, yeah. and you'd, they'd, talk, they'd start talking about their high school experience and they were back there again. That's right. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, listen, Bob, thank you so much for that. And you can listen more f from or you can listen more to Robert Geron at the Red Rock Literary Festival, November 6th and 7th. You can register for the event at our websites, reacharts.org. And I w just want to say thank you, Bob, and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stop by again.